In the early 2000s, the families of three missing girls received letters telling them what happened to their loved ones. The letters were mailed from the Manchester, New Hampshire area, though none of the letters have brought definitive answers as to what happened to Alicia Markovic, Pauline Orsborne, or Deborah Quimby. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Before we get started, I want to announce two meetups that I will be doing. One is the next one, which is happening in Mobile, Alabama on March 26th. We will be at the Icebox in downtown Mobile, which is on Monroe Street at 6.30. It will be me, Josh from True Crime BS, Melissa and Whitney from Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet, and also Lars from Rusty Hinges. Come by, say hi, get some stickers or whatever odds and ends I bring, and we can talk true crime. The other one I want to announce is the True Crime Podcast Festival, which is happening this year in August in Dallas. I will definitely be at that, and tickets should be for sale now, and if not now, within a few days of you hearing this. You can just go to truecrimepodcastfestival.com to get tickets. Now's the best time because there is limited early bird tickets. Also, the hotel rate that Eleni, the organizer, negotiated is fantastic. So this is a great opportunity. I will be at the festival. I also plan on meetups in Las Vegas, Anchorage, and Connecticut, maybe New York. So if you can't meet me in Mobile, you can't meet me in Dallas, hopefully you can make it to one of those other places. But let's get into today's episode. We are covering three cases that are all linked by an anonymous letter writer. That's one theory, that the letters all came from the same person. But there may be multiple writers, and we'll discuss things I noticed when I compared two of the letters to each other. I want to give credit to a recent article by The Daily American by Bruce Siwi and Eric Kieda, who, in covering one of these cases, pointed out the other two cases with letters. That's where I got the idea to take it a step further and cover all three cases in full. We will cover the cases not in the order they happened, but rather in the order the letters appeared. The first letter was in October 2000, and it had to do with the 1987 disappearance of Alicia Markovic. A big thank you goes out to Lori, who is an advocate for Alicia's case, who talked to me for this episode. And I also want to recommend the Who Killed podcast with Bill Huffman. His episode on Alicia's case is a straight interview with Lori, and it was really well done. So I wanted to point people in that direction. Lori told me she met Alicia first in kindergarten, and it was around sixth grade when they became really close friends, so she did know Alicia for most of her life. Alicia was born when her mother, Marcy, was quite young, only 14 years old. Alicia's father, John Markovic, was several years older, and the pair married prior to Alicia's birth. Marcy's parents had a big hand in helping raise Alicia, particularly when she was little, and Marcy was still growing up herself. So Alicia was really close to her extended family, who became extra parents to her. When John and Marcy divorced in 1981, after 10 years of marriage, Marcy was given custody of nine-year-old Alicia, and John had weekend visitation. 
Marcy and Alicia lived in Winbur, Pennsylvania, which is less than two hours from Pittsburgh. In 1987, Alicia was a ninth grader at Winbur High School, and she had the typical teenage life. She had a boyfriend, she had recently made the track team, and she spent time hanging out with family and friends. She loved to read murder mysteries like Agatha Christie, and Alicia seemed to have a very good relationship with both of her parents. Her parents, however, were having a disagreement between them over child support. I'm sure some of you have been in this position. Child support gets set when the child is, say, eight or nine. But then they're 15, and they're frankly more expensive. They eat more, they have more school expenses and fees, and they're about to start driving, which let me tell you, I spend more on car insurance for my 17-year-old to drive to the community college than I pay for his tuition there. John had been paying $100 a month from the beginning, which in today's money is around $250. Marcy wanted it adjusted up. She was asking for it to be doubled to $200. Because John and Marcy couldn't come up with an agreement between them, this dispute was going to court on Wednesday, April 29th, 1987. A few days before the court date, on Sunday, April 26th, John picked Alicia up at 9.30 in the morning for a day visit. They then drove the 50 minutes to John's house in Blairsville. Normally, when Alicia would go see her dad, it was for the whole weekend, and no one seems to quite remember why this weekend was different, and it was only a day visit. There had been some discussion about Alicia skipping seeing her dad entirely because the track team was running a fundraiser on Sunday, but it was decided for Alicia to go to her dad's house for at least the day. She invited a friend to go with her, but the friend couldn't make it. Marcy did tell Alicia, before she left, that if her dad brought up the child support dispute or really anything on the court side of things, to tell him that's for the adults to figure out. Marcy did not want Alicia to feel stuck in the middle or like she was a point of contention between her parents, so she encouraged Alicia to not engage with John about it. When Alicia left that Sunday morning, it was the last time Marcy or anyone other than John has seen her. Alicia was supposed to come home that night because she had school the next day. So Marcy tried to call Alicia a couple of times during the day to find out what time she planned to be home. She got no answer at John's house. She was surprised when Alicia wasn't home by 9 or 10, but Marcy did go to bed around 11 p.m. Yeah, Alicia should have been home, but Marcy didn't suspect anything was wrong. Maybe Alicia was out with John and they were having fun and he wasn't paying attention to the time. Maybe Alicia was going to spend the night with John and just get up early to head back to Winbur in time for school. Alicia was a responsible kid, and John was a good dad, so Marcy had no reason to suspect anything at all went wrong that day. At 1 a.m., Marcy woke up to her phone ringing. It was John, and he told Marcy that Alicia was gone. Marcy replied, what do you mean she's gone? John said that earlier that day, around 5 p.m., the two of them got into an argument. 
Initially, it was reported that the argument was about Alicia's grades and her friends. Alicia's friends were good kids, and her grades were A's and B's, so it did seem like an odd reason for them to argue. Later reporting indicated that the child support issue came up in this argument as well, so it may have been a compounded issue. John said that Alicia stormed out of the house as he was doing dishes, and he called after her to be back by 8 so he could drive her home. Alicia did have some friends in Blairsville, so John said he assumed she was going to go blow off steam with them. When she didn't come home, he drove around looking for her, including going to the trailer park he used to live at, where he knew she had some friends. This park was about two miles from his house. One of Alicia's friends from the trailer park came forward later and said Alicia had not been there that day and that John never knocked on his door that night looking for her. I did ask Alicia's friend and case advocate Lori if she had any of the files from the investigation. With unsolved cases, the police will often not provide you many documents, but you will sometimes at least get the incident report. So if they had that, we could see exactly what John said to the police when Marcy and John reported Alicia missing. Things like what was the argument about or if he said he made contact with anyone while looking for Alicia. But Lori said they have tried and no documents at all have been released, not even that initial missing persons report. We just have to rely on what has been released in the media. We also know that, aside from a pair of sunglasses, Alicia took nothing with her when she left. The police did respond and took the report. They did a walkthrough of John's house, and seeing nothing suspicious, they classified Alicia as a runaway based on John's statement about her storming off. Marcy did not believe Alicia ran away. She had never done so before, And where would she have gone? None of her friends had seen her. She did have a cousin she was very close to, and he had heard nothing. Her boyfriend hadn't heard from her either. Alicia didn't really have the personality to survive by her wits alone out on the streets, let alone this being rural Pennsylvania, so where would she be? Even if she left of her own free will, it just didn't make sense to Marcy that she would stay away for very long. Marcy went to Blairsville, where she handed out flyers and put up posters, looking for her daughter largely alone, until the police eventually came to agree with her that something bad had happened to Alicia. They later announced that they believed Alicia was likely killed the last day she was seen. John Markovic's house was near a highway, and so there was always the possibility Alicia got a ride with someone who seemed friendly, but wasn't. Lori told me she didn't think this was likely because Alicia could have called pretty much anyone to come get her. Even her boyfriend had a car, and he would have driven out there to pick her up if she was just so against being at John's house. But that does leave the possibility that Alicia got into a car, just not willingly, maybe while walking the two miles to her friend's house. The state police, who have been investigating her disappearance, have said they haven't ruled anyone in or out or any theory in or out. 
A year after Alicia's disappearance, with no word from her, right about 6.50 a.m. on May 5th, 1988, the police found the shell of a burned-out Subaru registered to Alicia's father, John Markovic. It was 13 miles from his house, and he said it had been stolen in the overnight hours, at some point after 1 a.m. One of the articles I saw about the car theft and arson noted that neither John nor Marcy's cars had been searched after Alicia disappeared. The theft and arson of the car went unsolved, with no link between the car and Alicia's disappearance being found or even ruled out. Over the next 13 years, the police would follow up on leads about Alicia's whereabouts whenever they would come in, but let's be honest, very few were coming in. And then John contacted the police in October of 2000 with the biggest lead in over a decade. A letter had been sent to him. It was investigated outside of the public eye and was not made known until March of 2001. This letter, which has not been released in full, claimed to know where Alicia's body was. The postmark was from Bedford, New Hampshire. Some sources say it was from New Bedford, but as far as I can tell, there is no New Bedford in New Hampshire. There is one in Massachusetts, but it is not near this area at all. Bedford, New Hampshire is a town of about 20,000 outside of Manchester. The letter sent was two pages long, and it was typewritten. The portion that has been made public says, What gave me the idea to contact you was when I saw by chance an old missing persons flyer posted on the side of a mailbox in Philadelphia about three weeks ago. The second time I saw it, it was like everything faded to gray. Nothing seemed real for a long time. I thought that it had all been buried forever. I had spent the last 13 years erasing and boarding up the name Alicia Markovic in my mind, and by seeing that, it opened up the floodgates, so to say, to a limitless sea of remorse, guilt, anxiety, inner sadness, and depression, end quote. I'm going to make two quick notes on this letter here. Both flyer and gray were flagged in my grammar checker and noted that the spellings used were British spellings. It flags those for me since I have my setting on American English. I know that both flyer and gray are words that Americans will use the British spellings on, so much so that the AP Style Guide changed which spelling of flyer they use in 2017. Both spellings of both words are accepted variations in the U.S., but it is interesting to me that both of these words were using this variation. The letter gave information on how Alicia died and then told John where to find her body, telling him to dig along the Connemaw River near a specific bridge. And I say Connemaw with about 65% confidence that's how you pronounce it. A search with cadaver dogs was done along the river, but nothing was found. The letter hadn't just been postmarked in Bedford. It actually had a return address on it. The police obviously followed this up, but the people in the house knew nothing about Alicia or her disappearance. They'd never heard of Blairsville, Pennsylvania, and they didn't know who would have sent the letter. 
The letter is believed to be a hoax, but Lori told me that she had someone give a tip that the letter was not written by John, but it was written by someone close to him. The intention was to get suspicion away from him, though the timing does seem really odd. It had been over 13 years, and there was no ongoing movement in the case. All the letter did was stir things up again, and more investigation was being done rather than less. So maybe that was the real intention of the letter, to get the police to start moving on this cold case again. In 2011, a press conference was held announcing that Alicia's baby teeth, which Marcy had saved, were being used to extract DNA to aid in the location of Alicia or her remains. Marcy attended the press conference, but John did not. By this point, he was working in Ohio and said he could not take time off of work. His wife, who he had been dating at the time Alicia went missing, did attend for him. Alicia's DNA was checked against that of Penny Doe, who had been found in a town about three hours east of Blairsville. She was found in July 1990. What's interesting here is that in the summer of 2002, after the letter in Alicia's case was made public, the police received a letter with information about Penny Doe. They haven't released what that information was, as far as I can tell, but the authorities did ask the letter writer to contact them so they could get more information. The basics of Penny Doe's description did match Alicia, as did the location and the timing, but the DNA ruled her out. I am curious about the letter in that case and if it did have any similarities to the letter in Alicia's case. Alicia's DNA has been checked against other Doe cases, and Lori is always looking for Jane Doe's posted online that could be Alicia. Lori is actually part of a team doing this work and also raising awareness for Alicia's case. Many of them have been doing what they could for years, but they came together and organized in August 2021. And you can probably tell by how many podcasts have covered the case all of a sudden. In addition to podcasts and traditional media interviews, they've put up a billboard and new flyers in Blairsville. They did notice that their flyers were being taken down, something Marcy said happened to her posters back in 1987 when Alicia first went missing. John is not currently part of the campaign to find Alicia. Marcy has not been quiet about her suspicions of John. Using past media interviews with John, we know what his theories are. He wondered at one point if Alicia tried to hitchhike back to her mom's house, though he admitted he didn't know her to have ever done that before. In another interview that I've heard referenced but couldn't find myself, John spoke on the possibility Alicia had been the victim of human trafficking. I asked Lori what she thinks needs to be done next to hopefully solve this case, and she said she would like to see them do a full search of John's house and property in Blairsville, which he still owns. Because that hasn't been done, it leaves open some questions that might be resolved if they did search. 
If you have any information on the disappearance of Alicia Markovic, you can call Pennsylvania Crime Stoppers at 1-800-472-8477 or visit crimewatch.net slash submit dash tip. You can also call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. So the family of the next victim we are going to talk about received a letter postmarked February 21st, 2001, four months after Alicia's letter was received. I considered the possibility that this was a copycat, but I couldn't find any reporting on the letter Alicia's father received prior to March 2001, so this would have been sent before the public even knew about Alicia's letter. And this is the case of Colleen Orisborne. Colleen was born in March 1969, the youngest of six children. When she was 12, her parents divorced after years of contention. As the only one of the children still at home, she got caught in the middle of a lot of arguments between her parents. When her mother, Frances, left her father, she took Colleen and they moved from Darby, Pennsylvania to coastal Florida, where they had family. This was a huge change for Colleen, and it came at a time when she was also becoming a teenager and going through all of those changes. And once in Florida, things did not suddenly stabilize. Her father wasn't always sending support, and Frances was balancing a job, a teen daughter, and some significant health problems. In early 1984, Frances was hospitalized for an extended period, and when she was ready to go back to work, she really could only manage part-time. Frances did have 15-year-old Colleen enrolled in a private school, but she had to pull her out and send her to a new public middle school in Daytona Beach. The school was yet another big change for Colleen. For one thing, it was her third school since moving to Florida just a few years before. And this school was also a tougher school than she was used to, being a public school in an urban area rather than a quiet parochial school. Though Colleen was smart and popular, she didn't like going, and truancy became an issue. The one bright spot in all of the struggle was where she and Frances lived. Frances had found a small apartment within walking distance of the beach. Colleen and her friends would go down to the beach for hours of free entertainment. And it wasn't just sand and water that's free in Daytona Beach, but also music and events. Daytona Beach is a very popular vacation spot. So they have a lot of amenities, like free concert series and events, to draw people in. And come March, there is no shortage of things to do. The first part of the month is Bike Week, where people pour into town from all over. It's on the scale of Sturgis as far as motorcycle rallies go. And as they're all leaving mid-month, the spring break crowds are coming in. Colleen was really into pop music. Any size star, any size band, she loved it. So she got the calendar from the Daytona Beach Band Shell listing all of the free concerts in March 1984, and she circled all the ones she hoped to go to. The problem was, a lot of these concerts were during the day when class was in session. So if Frances had trouble getting Colleen to go to school already, it was becoming nearly impossible at this point. 
On Thursday, March 15th, Francis was getting ready for work while Colleen was still in bed. It was a school day, and Colleen did not get up in time for the school bus. Francis needed to be to work on time. She certainly couldn't afford to lose that job. So she told Colleen to get out of bed, and she left enough money on the table for her to take the city bus to school. Late is better than not going at all. Francis got home from work around 4 p.m., and Colleen was not home. She wasn't immediately alarmed, except she did see that the money for the bus was still sitting there. So she knew Colleen did not go to school again. So here's the thing with Colleen. She would go places without permission, like to the beach instead of to school. But she would usually leave a note letting her mom know where she was, or she would call to check in and let her know so she didn't worry. So when Frances did not hear from Colleen that evening, she was getting a little worried. But she was also feeling frustrated about having this strong-willed daughter. Frances went into Colleen's room and saw that her apartment keys and birthday money were still there. And the only things missing were a bathing suit and some flip-flops. Frances also found Colleen's calendar where she wrote down one of the free concerts at the beach for that day. It seemed like Colleen had gone to the beach that day, but without having taken money or anything else, Frances assumed Colleen would be back later when all of her friends had to be home. When Colleen didn't come back that night, Frances called her adult children. Generally, if Colleen and Frances got into an argument, Colleen would head to one of her older siblings' house. She would vent, she would hang out, and then she would go home much calmer. Because Frances and Colleen had been arguing recently about her skipping school, it wouldn't be surprising to find her at her brother's house or her sister's house. But she wasn't at either. So Colleen's sister Margaret joined Frances in looking for Colleen the next day, which was Friday, March 16th. They found Colleen's little phone book and called all of her friends. None of them knew where Colleen was, and none of them were with her the day before when she skipped school. Margaret even went to the beach and to the band shell specifically to look for Colleen and couldn't find her. When they had no luck locating Colleen on their own that Friday, Margaret called the police. And being 1984, they told her she had to wait to report Colleen missing. She was a rebellious teen who would show up sooner or later. So the family made up their own flyers to put up, and on March 19th, with no word from Colleen, they officially reported her missing. So you will see March 19th listed in various places as the day Colleen went missing, but that really is just the date on the paperwork. The police took the missing person's report, but because Frances said she and Colleen had had an argument before Frances left for work, and she reported that Colleen had a history of leaving the house without permission, they did take this as a report of a runaway. But within two weeks, the FBI contacted the Daytona Beach Police to let them know they had tracked a serial killer to their area, a man named Christopher Wilder. And they wanted the Daytona Beach Police to review cases from mid-March that might be connected. 
So a little bit about Christopher Wilder for background. He was a native of Australia and immigrated to the United States in 1969, settling in Florida. He built a real estate business and soon amassed a fortune of $7 million. He also became a photographer as a hobby. Wilder had several charges against him related to sex crimes, most notably raping a woman after convincing her to come with him so he could photograph her for a possible modeling job. Though charged and occasionally convicted multiple times over a span of four years in the 1970s, Wilder was never given jail time in the United States. Then, in 1982, he went back to Australia for a visit and forced teen girls to pose nude for him. They reported it to the police, and Wilder was arrested. His parents paid his bail, and he returned to the United States with basically a promise he would go back to Australia for the court proceedings, which were scheduled for April 1984. If convicted, he was facing jail time in Australia. As that court date approached, 39-year-old Christopher Wilder did not make plans to return. Instead, he went on a massive killing spree. From his first known murder in February 1984 until he showed up in Georgia on March 20th, he was in Florida. And the night Colleen went missing, he was staying in a hotel in Daytona Beach. Wilder then went on to abduct, rape, and kill or attempt to kill women in Texas, Kansas, Utah, California, Indiana, and New York. On April 13th, Wilder was in New Hampshire when he was spotted at a gas station by two state troopers. They approached him and Wilder pulled a gun. There was a fight over the gun and Wilder and one of the troopers were both shot. Wilder died, but the trooper survived. The Daytona Beach police, now knowing Wilder was in their area during his killing spree, looked at any missing persons cases they had at the time, and of course, Colleen was one of them. The police then went to the media and asked for any witnesses to come forward. One tip that came in was from a classmate of Colleen's. She said she and her boyfriend were hanging out at a playground on the day Colleen was last seen. While there, a man in a luxury car pulled up. He called her over and told her she had model good looks. He was with a magazine and he wanted to take her picture. From what we know from Wilder's surviving victims, this was a ploy he used repeatedly. The girl hesitated and Wilder offered her $100 for the job but she and her boyfriend both found the entire situation creepy and walked away. They said that after the girl said no, the man drove off and turned down the street that would have led to Colleen's apartment, which was a few blocks away. The police showed both of the teens a photo lineup, and they chose two people who could have been the man who spoke to them, and one of them was Christopher Wilder. Wilder then became a suspect in the disappearance of Colleen Orsborne. On April 19th, a month after Colleen was reported missing, a body was found in Lake County, Florida. The Daytona Beach police thought it was a possible match to Colleen 
but they had trouble getting her dental records from Pennsylvania. They had a Margaret, Colleen's sister, look at items found with the Jane Doe, including clothing, shoes, and a necklace. Margaret didn't recognize any of it as belonging to Colleen. Francis told the investigators that Colleen had broken her arm a few years before, so they were able to get the x-ray from that break and compare it to the Jane Doe. The Lake County Doe did not have the signs of a healed fracture in that area, so she was ruled out. About two weeks later, on April 30th, the family was notified of another Jane Doe. She was found in Orange County near Disney World. A fisherman was walking through the woods when he saw a knee poking up from a shallow grave. The body was too decomposed to identify easily. No clothing items were found, but the Daytona Beach police sent the same arm x-ray to Orange County, along with some hairs pulled from some of Colleen's hairstyling items. The Emmy ruled the arm break and the hair were not matches to the Orange County doe. Though they had a dead suspect, they did not have Colleen's body and the case went cold. Then five years after Colleen's disappearance, her mother, Frances, died. Margaret said Frances held on to hope that Colleen was out there somewhere, alive. And she blamed herself for Colleen leaving. She feared that Colleen had left in search of a better life than Frances could provide for her at the time. So let's fast forward to February 2001 and the arrival of this anonymous letter. This letter sent to Colleen's brother claimed to know what happened to her. Unlike the letter to Alicia's father, this letter was not typed. It was handwritten with a black felt marker. Also, unlike Alicia's letter, this one was released in full. It read, To the parent-slash-family member of Colleen Orsborne, I write you because I am dying of cirrhosis of the liver. I killed your beloved Colleen nearly 15 years ago. For that, I can only beg your forgiveness. I can only attempt to make amends by disclosing to you where her innocent little body is. I remember it was in the Tomoka River along 415. It was about a mile or so from the Route 4 overpass. I also remember I dumped her clothes in a black trash bag about 100 feet from the body. Please pray for me like I pray for you and her. The letter was then signed with a simple fish like the Christian symbol. Some things to note about this letter. Multiple words were spelled incorrectly. Not just difficult words like cirrhosis, but also by was spelled B-U-Y. Prey was spelled P-R-E-Y. Wear was spelled like were. Close was spelled like close the door. Also, commas were used in place of some periods. This would look like someone who wasn't educated, but the colons and slashes were used correctly, indicating someone who was educated. And there are two theories that I have on this. One was that this was not a native English speaker, so they mixed up the spellings of words that sound the same, by and by, pray and pray. There are also some Romance languages that do have rules where you can use a comma instead of a period, so possibly the writer's native language is one of those. The other thought 
I had was that the mistakes were on purpose to hide their writing style. It is easier to fake mistakes than it is to fake being correct. Colleen's brother gave more insight into the letter on the episode of Disappeared about Colleen's case. He said he knew that it was not written by a local because of how the location was described. It said Route 4 when it's actually Interstate 4. Also, no one local says 415. They call the road by the name of the street. With as many people coming and going from Daytona Beach at the time, both with Bike Week and Spring Break, it's very possible whoever abducted Colleen was not a local. If this letter was authentic, it confirmed that. The crime lab tried to get fingerprints or DNA from the letter, stamp, or envelope, but got no result. The authorities wondered if this was possibly written by someone in a recovery program like Alcoholics Anonymous for a few reasons. First, the writer said they were dying of cirrhosis of the liver. That is a disease that is often caused by long-term excessive alcohol use. Second, they used the language of someone working the program, like making amends. It's step nine, making direct amends to anyone we harmed, except when doing so will cause harm. Closing it out with a religious symbol also points to AA, which, while it can be run in a secular manner, it is generally rooted in some sort of spiritual belief in a higher power. They're also often run out of churches. Because the postmark was from Manchester, New Hampshire, the police looked into area AA meetings and programs to see if anyone fit the profile, but they didn't find anything. And of course, they searched the river, but they also found nothing. And that's because Colleen's body wasn't there. It was actually buried as a Jane Doe, 80 miles away behind Disney World. In the early 2000s, Orange County got a new medical examiner who decided to clear the list of Doe cases they had piling up. She began extracting DNA from the remains and sending it in for testing to compare to family members of missing people. One of these Doe cases was the body found in 1984 by the fishermen. Colleen had been ruled out as a match, but that was by 1984 forensic standards and certainly not as definitive as DNA. Though the body had been buried, they kept the skull and mandible in storage in case a time came where they could identify her. Using these items, they were able to successfully extract DNA. The Orsborn family learned about this new effort to identify does in 2010 when a reporter called Margaret to ask her about it. She went on to Web Sleuths to learn more about this and saw the artist pictures of the Orange County Doe, and one of them looked so much like Colleen that it surprised her. A few weeks after this, the family received news that the Jane Doe's mitochondrial DNA was a match to Margaret's DNA, meaning they were maternally related. Margaret only had one known maternal relative missing, and that was her sister, Colleen. A review of the original Emmy's examination of the remains showed two major issues that hindered this identification. The first was the hair used in comparison was from Colleen's curling iron. 
something she shared with friends. It was not a reliable source. The second issue was that the medical examiner did not compare Colleen's arm x-ray with an arm x-ray of the Jane Doe. He simply read the general radiology report that didn't note the healed injury and decided that meant it wasn't there. Had he done more investigation and x-rayed that arm specifically, they very likely would have found the healed break. Now, I can't imagine having a missing sibling, having both of our parents die without answers, to only then learn that she was found six weeks after she went missing. They spent 26 years not knowing, and it seems like such an unnecessary burden for them to have carried. Margaret said in the Disappeared episode that she does not want to know any details of what happened to Colleen, but she was glad they found her body and they had her back. In July 2011, Colleen Orsborne was declared dead and her death was ruled a homicide. Christopher Wilder remains the prime suspect. There was an odd lead in this case in 2020 when cold case detectives found four school photos in Colleen's case file. They were teenagers and they were taken in Quincy, Massachusetts, somewhere Colleen had no connection. But Quincy is about an hour and a half by car from Manchester, New Hampshire, where the letter was postmarked from. There was no indication in the file why those photos were included. Were they misfiled? Were they connected? Nobody knew. The latest update I could find on that lead was that they identified and spoke with three of the women in the photos, who are all adults now, and none of them knew anything about Colleen or how their school pictures ended up in a Florida case file. While the prime suspect in Colleen's case is deceased, this is hardly a closed case. From my quick look at things, there are reasons to believe This wasn't Christopher Wilder, including the fact that he tended to dump bodies, not bury them. If you have any information on the murder of Colleen Orsborne, you can contact the Orange County Sheriff's Office cold case team at ocsocoldcase at ocfl.net or call 407-254-7000. So let's look at the notes in both Colleen's case and Alicia's. Both are believed to be hoaxes, and since they were both sent from the Manchester, New Hampshire area within months of each other, many assume it is the same person. If it was, they did a great job disguising their writing style because these letters could not be any more different. One was typed and the other was handwritten. Alicia's letter used more literary language like, when I saw by chance, and everything faded to gray. The one to Colleen's family was full of errors and misspellings of common words. It used common phrases like beg your forgiveness, where Alicia said things like limitless sea of remorse and boarding up the name Alicia Markovic in my mind. Any English teacher can tell you which letter writer would have gotten an A and which would have gotten a C. On the other hand... It seems so unlikely that two people in the same area within four months of each other would independently decide to send hoax letters to the families of missing teenagers. 
But if the same person wrote these, they purposely made errors in the letter to Colleen's family. The next case we're going to talk about actually had multiple letters sent. I would love to evaluate those letters side by side with the other two, but none of the text has ever been released, so we cannot include this in my amateur analysis. So let's cover the case, though, which was the disappearance of Deborah Quimby. Deborah went missing in 1977, and in her case, there were actually three letters sent, and all of them write to the police. Deborah lived in Townsend, Massachusetts. Unlike Alicia and Colleen, this is actually near Manchester, New Hampshire, where the letters seem to be coming from. Townsend is about 45 minutes south. On May 3, 1977, 13-year-old Deborah left her house on bike when her parents were not home. When they arrived at the house, they found a note Deborah left saying she was riding her bike out to her grandfather's campsite four miles away. She said she needed time to think but would be back later. After Deborah didn't come home, her father, Richard, drove around looking for her and found she never made it to her grandfather's that day. A friend had ridden halfway with her but turned around to go back while Deborah kept going. When they could not find Deborah, her parents called the police. Not a lot has been released about the investigation, except that the police searched Deborah's locker at school. In it was a note that she wrote to a friend saying that they needed to talk and gave directions to her grandparents' place. She hadn't delivered the letter, and it's not clear if she spoke with the friend aside from this. Her parents did say they suspected that Deborah was meeting up with someone that day, whether at her grandparents' camp or elsewhere in the area. Deborah went missing with two specific things that have not been found. One was her cheerleading jacket. It was a blue Pop Warner jacket with her name Debbie down the sleeve. The other was her brown 10-speed bicycle, which has been described as a boy's style. This just means it had a diamond frame, meaning the top tube, known as the crossbar, went straight across rather than being angled down, which is known as a step-through frame. So a fun fact, the reason quote-unquote girls' bikes had the lower bar was so that women in full-length dresses and skirts could step through the bike without getting the skirt caught up. The gendered style preference remained for decades, even after most women started wearing pants. The path Deborah Road was searched, but nothing of note was found. Then in 2002, and again in 2003, two letters were sent to the Townsend police. The letters were typed, but the envelopes were hand-addressed. The two letters had different postmarks. One was from Manchester, and the other was from Worcester, Massachusetts. According to the local police, this didn't mean the letters were not mailed from Townsend, though. The way the mail system works there is that the mail is often sent to the larger town for processing. Townsend is halfway between Manchester and Worcester, 30 miles, give or take, from each. And if the letters were processed in either town, they would have that postmark. The letter writer did not confess to killing Deborah, but said to look at Walker Pond, which is partway between her home and her grandparents. The pond had been a place that was broadly searched previously, and search dogs had actually led police there in a previous search. 
So after the first letter, they did a sonar search of the pond, but found nothing. This was May 2003. The second letter asked if they could look again and gave a more specific spot to look. At this point, they decided to do a deeper search, which included draining the pond in June of 2004. The search lasted 38 days through mud and muck. A few items were found, like clothing and the frames of two bicycles, but they didn't match what Deborah was last seen with. A third letter came in 2010, and like the others, the specifics have not been released. The police have most recently said there were about 8 to 10 persons of interest that they were looking at. All of them were locals at the time Deborah went missing. If you have any information on the disappearance of Deborah Quimby, you are asked to call Townsend Police Department, 978-597-2242. And I will leave the information for where to send tips for all three of these cases in the show notes. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.